Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, the streets of Hong Kong were in protest again. However, this time peaceful. What is different? And are those protests coming to Canadian shores? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer wants the RCMP to investigate the SNC-Lavalin Jody Wilson-Raybould interference case by the Prime Minister's office. Will he get his wish? And Global News has conducted a four-part series on Big Pharma and doctors with a look at the rules or lack thereof around disclosure and their contribution to the opioid crisis. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The streets of Hong Kong flooded by a sea of of pro-democracy demonstrators again on Sunday. Uh, The latest march was a rare occurrence of a peaceful assembly that on previous weekends had been uh, dominated by violence. However, tensions escalated in Toronto where two opposing groups clashed. And now the Chinese embassy is calling for Foreign Affairs Minister Christy Freeland to stop meddling in its affairs. Uh, she urged re- uh, restraint and called for steps to be taken to de-escalate the situation. Uh, first of all, let's uh, give you a couple of reports. This one from Jeff Semple, Global's Jeff Semple in Hong Kong. Well, I'm here just outside of central government headquarters in Hong Kong. It's a gray concrete building that is now covered in spray-painted messages from yesterday's pro-democracy protest, including one that reads, Liberate Hong Kong, a reference to what protesters say is Beijing tightening its grip on this semi-autonomous city. Just when it seemed like that pro-democracy movement was running out of steam, yesterday organizers say 1.7 million people took part in a massive rally and march through the streets of Hong Kong with more demonstrations already planned for this week. Jeff Semple, Global News, Hong Kong. All right, let's bring in Gloria Fung, president of Canada Hong Kong Link, and is with us now. Gloria, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, what is Canada Hong Kong Link? Uh, Canada Hong Kong Link is an Ontario registered uh, community organization to enhance the exchange between Canada and Hong Kong. And we particularly uh, pay a lot of attention uh, to the development in Hong Kong after its handover to China after 1997. So over the past 22 years, we've been doing uh, conducting a lot of events and activities uh, achieving our mission. What are your thoughts of the protests over the weekend? The fact that this is still going on, uh, I think it's 11 weeks now, uh, 1.7 million people. Why peaceful this weekend? What changed? Yeah, I think uh, this past Sunday's uh, 1.7 million strong uh, demonstration actually sent out two very strong messages to the world. Number one, uh, despite the uh, Hong Kong police and gangsters' violence, there's still a very strong support for the ongoing Hong Kong movement uh, because uh, on Sunday, we saw uh, Hong Kong people from all walks of life, men and women, young and old, including babies, uh, participated in the rally despite the pouring rain. So it is indeed a very touching scene. Number two, uh, the protesters also support peaceful and nonviolent demonstration. And there won't be any conflict should the Hong Kong police uh, did not intervene unreasonably. 
did did police back off this weekend? Were they less aggressive? Uh, I think they back off this week. They did not intervene, and therefore uh, the rally and march ended uh, peacefully. And all the protesters also left the scene peacefully without doing anything right uh, in the city. So I think uh, this is a very good lesson for the Hong Kong government and also the Hong Kong police to learn from, meaning if they don't intervene unreasonably, the protesters won't do anything uh, to, you know, uh, resist, right, or the unreasonable uh, clearing operation. Gloria, are you concerned this is a calm before a storm? Are you concerned that this is only the beginning as China continues to tighten its grasp around Hong Kong? Well, over the past, uh, one and a half weeks, I have witnessed several incidents. Number one, uh, the central government uh, from Beijing has summoned uh, the Hong Kong pro-Beijing community leaders for briefing. And they were called upon by the Beijing government to reiterate their firm support for the Hong Kong government and also the Hong Kong police. Uh, I also saw a lot of military troops tanks and uh, trucks uh, being gathering, uh, being gathered at the border to Hong Kong in Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also, uh, actually even in the international community, I also see a lot of United Front organizations closely linked to the Chinese embassy have been mobilized to kick off a global strategy of intimidation and harassment of the peaceful demonstrations of Hong Kong support groups. So all these signs are could indicate that the Hong Kong government and Beijing government may plan to heighten the crackdown on the Hong Kong movement soon. Uh, there was reports of uh, demonstration clashes between uh, uh, Canadian pro-democracy Chinese and those that were uh, 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 national uh, nationals and in, in supporting uh, China, uh, but living here. Uh, I was talking to a professor at University of British Columbia last week, and he said he was concerned come September that there would be uh, clashes between pro-democracy Canadians and 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 those that that, that were uh, that were from China and were just over here studying. Um, your thoughts on this, and are, are you concerned that um, that those issues those issues will escalate here uh, in other parts of the world? Uh, absolutely. I'm also very concerned about uh, what the Communist Party of China uh, will be doing next, right, in the in the international community, including Canada. Because over the last one month, I've seen several things happening in Canada. Number one, just more than a month ago, there were two uh, different incidents of a full-page ad placed in Chinese language media. Uh, by United Front organizations, very closely linked to the Chinese embassy here, to uh, affirm the support for the Hong Kong police. Instead, they condemned the protesters to be rioters. And then next, uh, just shortly more than a week ago, there was also a rally in Toronto, hosted by the United Front organizations. 
even our former MPP Michael Chen, who uh, has been very closely linked uh, with the Chinese embassy, was one of the speakers there, uh, supporting Hong Kong police and also Hong Kong government. So I wonder what their allegiance is to us, whether it's towards China hmm. or towards Canada. And number three, just this past weekend, I have seen very well orchestrated global strategy uh, by the Communist Party of China uh, to intimidate and harass uh, peaceful demonstrators uh, in different parts of the world, including Toronto, Vancouver, uh, while they are trying to express their opinion about Hong Kong. And this is an attempt by China to control what is said about China in foreign countries. They try to manipulate international media coverage of the Hong Kong movement by smearing the Hong Kong movement to be pro-independence. But if we clearly read uh, the five demands by the Hong Kong people, none of it is related to Hong Kong independence. So, uh, and then uh, over the past one week, we have seen uh, screenshots in WeChat. uh, Some of the organizers of these intimidation fan up the the nationalistic sentiment of the Chinese students in Canada uh, via WeChat. And they were misled uh, to believe that uh, we are pro-Hong Kong independence, which is absolutely wrong. So this kind of deliberate and also well-organized intimidation and harassment of Canadians' uh, peaceful demonstration is actually a threat to our freedom of expression and also our democracy. This past Sunday, when we are hosting our rally uh, in front of the Toronto Old City Hall, uh, the Chinese students, they boo at us when we sang our Canadian national anthem. Mm. They also stepped onto our Canadian monument, waving the Chinese flags. They did not show any respect to our, to Canada, nor to our values and traditions. How so, ironic is it that those students are do that those pro-China students are doing this in Canada and the same sort of activity in their homeland would get them arrested? Exactly. That is exactly what we told them. We said, we wish you have the guts to do the same thing when you go back to China. And I bet they, they, they won't dare to do so because there's absolutely no democracy, no freedom of expression in the entire China. But here they were, uh, you know, mobilized by the United Front organization. So, Gloria, help us help us understand this, because, you know, here we have pro China students demonstrating in Canada. And as I mentioned, ironic if they did that back home against their government, uh, they certainly wouldn't have the rights that they do here in Canada. So uh, when you when you say that to one of these pro-China students, how, how do they justify being in a, especially arguing with other Canadian Chinese who believe in democracy and perhaps the Canadian system and way of life? How how do uh, pro-China uh, students uh, how do they square this? How do they how do they how do they justify this? Well, I what do they what do they yeah. say to you? Well, they didn't. They didn't say a word because I was told by one of the English media uh, reporters, uh, she asked me, 
Gloria, do you uh, do you know the reason why that none of the students dare to answer my question when I try to interview with them? I say that is not a surprise to me because probably many of them don't even know what is going on in Hong Kong. So they were rallied there to wave flag to uh, to chant the slogans assigned to them, and I noticed that the entire action was. Uh, in, uh, was actually led by a few older guys carrying sound systems and also using the cellular phone uh, to give instruction to the to the entire group. And uh, these people have been identified to be closely uh, to be some of to be associated with the United uh, Front organizations of the Chinese embassy. So I think uh, these people won't dare to answer. Uh, our question nor to be interviewed by media because what could they say? They number one, they may not. What, what about? Let me ask you this, what Glory. Going on in Hong Kong. What, let me ask you this, Glory. What about a a, a pro China student nationalist in studying in in Canada? Are they viewing what's going on in China and Hong Kong differently now from what they would if they were in their home country? And, and and you were saying earlier that some of these w- people, these pro-China demonstrators, don't even know what's going on in Hong Kong. Would they not see that through the Western media? Well, I doubt very much there will be a huge difference because these people, even before they came out to study or work here, they have all been brainwashed by the Communist Party of China hmm. for years and years. So even after they have landed here, or they have stayed here for, you know, a year uh, because of uh, pursuit of their study or work, uh, they they are still surrounded by their own people, by the embassy. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually many of the associations here, the United Front Organization, they have been constantly receiving funding from the Chinese embassy. Why wouldn't, let me let me ask you this, Gloria, why wouldn't, why wouldn't China want these students out of Canada in fearing that they might be influenced by pro-democracy Canadian Chinese? Why would they want them even here? Why would they not bring them all home thinking that they're going to come home and bring democracy with them? Well, this, uh, you have brought out a very ironic uh, question. Uh, actually, it's not only confined to these uh, students. When we look at, uh, when we uh, background check uh, the, the, the children or even grandchildren of the Chinese top-ranking Communist Party leader, their, uh, their children, their grandchildren have all been studying abroad. Look at Xi Jinping's daughter. She was mm-hmm. a student of Harvard University. And Chang Xiaoping's uh, 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 grandchildren or even children, they all study in the state. So on one hand, the Communist Party may uh, severely criticize the so-called Western democracies. Uh, but on the other hand, they won't hesitate in sending their offspring out to study abroad. And this, is ex- this exactly illustrates the hypocrisy. Um. 
during this interview, Gloria, you have used the term Communist Party of China several times. Uh, during the last several decades, we've all in the Western world known of the opportunities, the, the business, the economic, uh, economic act, um, uh, advantages and, and opportunities that are in China. China very much the golden goose for many decades. Do Canadians realize that China is still controlled and manipulated by the Communist Party of China? I doubt very much about that because I think this is a big lesson to be learned by uh, by the international community. Because two decades ago, or 30 decades ago, when uh, the Junho massacre occurred in Beijing, uh, a lot uh, they were, you know, the international community imposed sanctions on China for three years. And uh, but then soon after that, there is a myth. Uh, spreading around the Western world, saying that by engaging China in the international institutions, China will gradually comply with our universal values, right. and the society will become more liberal and democratic. But actually, this is all wrong, because look at the last 30 years. Instead of becoming more and more liberal and democratic like Canada or other Western democracies. China has grown in its economy and financial power. And uh, instead of becoming more more liberal and democratic, China has started to use very arrogantly its economic power to silence the rest of the world, including Canada. And uh, if we do not comply with its rules of game, you know, they will try all means to bully us. Look at what China has done to our Canadians ever since the arrest of Meng Wanzhou last December. A few Canadians have been arrested, including the two Michaels, for eight months without any evidence of their allegation being presented. And uh, they will not even uh, get the access to the help of a lawyer. And then many, uh, some other uh, Canadians involved in drug uh, smuggling were uh, were given capital punishment. Mm-hmm. So this is absolutely no rule of law in China. They rule by fear. They rule by violence and lies. So I think it's about time for us Canadians, as well as people around the world, including our governments, to recognize, to re- reconsider, right? our understanding of the true nature of the Chinese government. It is not an ordinary country or government that we have been dealing with. It is very evil, and they never stop their evil to control the world with its own ideology, and now also with its own economic power. Should the U.S. and Canada let Huawei uh, be involved in the 5G network? Absolutely not, Mm. because over the past uh, uh, two decades, I have seen, let me focus on Canada, because a lot of Canadians are not aware of what's happening here. We've only got about a minute China, left, Gloria, so go ahead. Okay. Now, China has uh, actually donated uh, a, you know, a lot of money to our universities and research institutes using anonymous donors' names, okay? And uh, by doing so, they controlled the, you know, the high-tech development results of our researchers. And then 
Tsingtao uh, government has not been very sensitive, nor have they implemented strict control of the export of uh, high technology. Uh, and many of our development results in terms of high technology have been actually uh, uh, taken over by China, and uh, including the 5G technology, because University of Waterloo, University of, uh, uh, of, of Toronto, they've all been involved in the development of some of the software necessary to make the social control mechanism of China happen. This includes the surveillance camera, the, the social credit mm. system, hardware and software. And now China is exporting its social control knowledge and hardware to other dictatorial regimes like Africa and also Central America. So it's spreading its evil control experience to, to other parts of the world. And this is a major threat to the global democracy. I think we need to be aware of this and our government need to take necessary steps to prevent this from happening. Gloria, I'm going to have to stop you there, but we will have you back. Fascinating discussion. Gloria Fung has been with us, President of Canada, Hong Kong Link. The streets of Hong, uh, the streets of Hong Kong flooded by a sea of pro-democracy demonstrators again this past weekend, but all relatively safe. Gloria, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. We'll chat again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer wants the RCMP to determine if Prime Minister Trudeau committed a crime in addition to violating the Conflict of Interest Act in the SNC-Lavalin affair. He has written the commission. He has written the commissioner asking her to launch an investigation to talk more about all of this. Peter Grape is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. How's the summer going so far, Peter? It's uh, going too quickly. <laughs> I hear you. Your thoughts on what has uh, uh, what has come out of, of the ethics uh, commissioner's report and how this whole story just it monopolized so much of our time way back when, when it broke, and the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, 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 demotion out of the attorney general's chair and such. Uh, will the final chapter of this, meaning the ethics commissioner's report, does that have as much weight as this whole story did when it started? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's like the old days when in the summer you had to watch reruns and you were waiting for the new stuff in the fall. In many ways, I think this report's, you know, similar to that. I I think most people had a pretty good idea of what had happened, uh, you know, by the time we got into March uh, and April last year. And uh, I don't think there's much in this report that would change people's minds. Uh, I mean, in many ways, it confirmed pretty much what we already knew. Uh, There was maybe a bit more detail of the extent to which... uh, the Liberal government was sort of uh, at the end of SNC-Lavalin's yo-yo string and kind of getting moved around by that. But, you know, generally we already had a pretty good sense that uh, that was the case. So, now there isn't really a lot here that will have changed what people think. Clearly, it's a way to remind people of it because people's memories are short, but, uh, you know, that this was an issue. But I think for the opposition parties, you know, they're trying to draw this out as much as possible to keep, you know, this uh, obviously one of the low points of the, the Liberal government in people's minds. But... 
I don't think it's having a whole lot of success competing with uh, the dying days of summer. Uh, are we? Uh, is there any chance prior to this uh, calling for the RCMP uh, investigation? We'll get to that in a sec. Uh, the Conservatives have been on both sides. I guess NDP as well um, have asked for the Ethics Committee to take a look at this again. Is there any way they're going to bring that circus back out before an election campaign? Well, they have the numbers to get the committee to sit again. Um, uh, but once the committee sits, uh, the majority is held by the Liberals, and so if there's a push to have a fuller investigation or to call uh, the Ethics Commissioner to come and testify in front of them and discuss his report, clearly that will be downvoted by the Liberals. Uh, I presume for the opposition parties that's gold in itself because it's you know a sign of the Liberals trying to hide something, uh, and so that always you know plays well in politics too. But Again, I suspect for most Canadians, they're looking at the election in you know just over uh, you know two months' time, actually less than two months' time, uh, and I suspect you know they've already made their mind up about how this affects what they think about the Liberal Party, and they they may want to get on to have a better understanding of well, what are these parties promising and putting forward uh, going into that election. So I'm not sure how long this will last and how long it will then push people to say, well, wait a second, uh, you know, what would have these opposition parties done differently in this situation? Uh, will we see the Ethics Committee go through the process, or will it just be shut down? Uh, I think they'll go through the process of meeting. Right. I think it's in the interests of the, the opposition parties, to, and particularly I think the Conservatives have bet on this, to, to keep it in the public eye. So I think it tarnishes the Liberals, or at least reduces the ability of the Liberals to roll out good news announcements going into the election. Um, but, uh, you know, it will not, I think, go further than that. I think the Liberal members will say, no, we don't want to call the Ethics Commissioner. And again, I'm sure the Conservatives and the NDP will make about a day's hay out of that, uh, and then, you know, we'll be on to the next thing. I understand the Ethics Commissioner was selected by the Prime Minister. Um, does that change, does that change uh, um, the optics at all? Yeah, I don't think particularly. I mean, again, I, I think people, to the extent... That the fact pres- that it was one of his people that has come out and said this, as opposed to the opposition parties? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think it changes a great deal. I mean, most of the facts that are in that report had been more or less admitted by the people who were, you know, principally involved. And so, you know, when the, the report comes out and Trudeau says, "Yeah, well, I take responsibility for it, but I won't take any blame because I was doing it for Canadian jobs and so forth." Uh, I mean, that's the same thing we heard back in the spring. And so, again, I, I don't think uh, there were huge you know, revelations of that nature that would change how Canadians think about it. And so, you know, the fact that it's the ethics commissioner that told them what they already know and that he was appointed by Trudeau, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a big deal there. I mean, Trudeau, in a way, has not tried to hide what happened. Mm. Uh, it's more that he's tried to deny that there was anything wrong done. And, uh, you know, the ethics commissioner, I guess, has pointed out that, no, that was in contravention with the ethics rules. Uh, but again, I think a lot of Canadians had figured that out themselves back in the spring. Uh, the fact that Justin Trudeau hasn't apologized and justified it by saying, "I'm sta- you know, I'm paraphrasing, standing up for Canadian jobs," does that resonate? Especially considering it involves charges of bribery and corruption. Yeah, I mean, I don't think. I mean, the claim that he's standing up for Canadian jobs is maybe uh, in the short term useful for him. Uh, you know, because again, people who think he's fundamentally corrupt are probably not going to be voting Liberal anyway. Uh, but for sort of swing Liberal conservative voters, that's probably a claim that has some, you know, resonance. Although, again, uh, it may be that Andrew Scheer can move on to, a, you know, an exposition to say, well, generally, you know, governments, when they're fighting for jobs, don't have to do it <laughs> behind the back and behind closed doors and in private and break all kinds of rules to do that. So it's hard to say in the long run whether that's going to do. But, yeah, I mean, certainly, 
if Canadians are following the, the sort of the legal constitutional side of it, which is to say that he did something that was really quite improper in terms of the respect of the rule of law, right? That decisions about who should be prosecuted or not prosecuted shouldn't be political ones, but made on the you know the basis of judicial uh, and a certain degree of independence in the in the prosecutorial decision making. I mean, he he flaunted uh, that rule and is quite proud of it, <laughs> and says the the ends justify the means. And so I suspect for Canadians who are worried about something like that, I think they're much less likely to support uh, their Liberal candidates in the fall. Um, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer wants the RCMP to investigate this. Uh, Here's a clip of uh, Andrew Scheer on that. In light of both the Ethics Commissioner's finding and the revelations about the RCMP's previous involvement, I have formally requested the RCMP take another look. My letter to Commissioner Lukey today presents what I believe are significant grounds for an investigation into whether or not Justin Trudeau violated Section 139 of the Criminal Code obstructing justice. Now, we know that Justin Trudeau has broke the law. Now we need to know if he has committed a crime. Isn't that the same? Uh, let's bring in Peter Graff uh, again, uh, political science professor, McMaster University. Uh, your thoughts on on uh, the RCMP, the possibility of the RCMP looking into this, and uh, in the opposition wanting to do so, will that have legs? Uh, probably not. I mean, obviously, uh, it's in the interest of Andrew Scheer to make it look like the government is under criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that looks that looks bad, but. At the same time, uh, you know, it's odd on the one hand to be saying, well, we want the independence of prosecutors from politics, but, uh, you know, that the opposition parties should be directing the RCMP <laughs> in terms of how they do their work. Uh, you know, I mean, presumably the RCMP has their own legal advice and their own capacity to figure out when laws are broken without having to be told so uh, by, uh, by politicians in our system. Uh, so, I mean, there is something that's very kind of theatrical about this, uh, you know, but also I think in the long run it's probably not uh, not that healthy uh, in our system. Just like it's not healthy to have the prime minister uh, instructing the attorney general about prosecutions, I don't think it's that healthy to be having our politicians, you know, making direct appeals to the police force to investigate X or Y uh, when we feel that our police forces have the capacity to do that, uh, you know, independently of that political interference. Uh, is, has Jody Wilson-Raybould been vindicated here? I would say for the most part. I mean, her version of the story, I think, is more or less a version of the story that came out from the ethics commissioner. Uh, Again, I mean, people who feel that she had an overly strict interpretation of the independence of the attorney general, I mean, there's plenty of people who have been critical of her handling of the file for being too much of a stickler around certain rules or over-applying them uh, in a sense that maybe, uh, you know, injured a Canadian uh, corporation. Uh, and those people, I think, will still feel that, you know, that she did something wrong. But for the most part, in terms of the sort of letter of the process about how these things should go about, I think the the, the ethics commissioner's report, you know, vindicates her and makes it quite clear that she was applying the, you know, the Shawcross doctrine uh, in a manner that, uh, you know, is commendable in our system. Uh, the fact uh, that Gerald Butts was brought back to help uh, Prime Minister Trudeau with his election campaign. He, of course, uh, his right-hand man, chief advisor way back when during the SNC, Jody Wilson-Raybould affair, and resigned. He said not because he did anything wrong, but because it was distracting from the job at hand. Um, oh, hang on a sec. You know what? We're going to hold right here, and we're going to go live to uh, the, the Prime Minister talking about this. The independence of our judicial system and the independence uh, of our prosecutors. Uh, we recognize that Things should have been done differently. 
And that's why months ago we asked former uh, Attorney General Anne McClellan uh, to uh, have conversations and consult experts, former attorneys general, uh, constitutional law professors, to establish a way forward so that neither our government nor any other government ever finds himself in the uh, difficult situation we found ourselves in. All right, Will, we've only got a few minutes left, so we'll move on. Uh, uh, Peter Graff, a, pl a political science professor from Mac uh, McMaster University, still with us. Uh, I was right in the middle of that question there, uh, Peter. Uh, now that uh, Butts is back with the uh, Prime Minister helping him get reelected, does that change things now that the Ethics Commissioner has confirmed those allegations with this report? Uh, I don't think it affects much. I think it's like way way into sort of inside baseball uh, of Canadian politics for most yeah. of the people following. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it is odd. I mean, that Butts is meant to be a sort of the master crafter of narrative, but really the reason for him leaving was never that clear, <laughs> particularly since the Prime Minister said nothing had been done wrong. Uh, you know, and similarly in this, you know, this most recent clip, I mean, it is true that we saw after uh, Ethics Commissioner Dion's report came out immediately afterwards, the the government released this Anne McClellan report about prosecutorial independence. Uh, I mean, clearly it was an attempt for them to try and, uh, uh, you know, staunch uh, or counteract the bad news of the ethics commissioner's report. But, you know, again, it was, uh, you know, Trudeau, on the one hand, he said he did nothing wrong, and yet at the same time, you know, he needs new rules to make sure that, you know, these problems don't repeat themselves. So he, he doesn't seem to understand or, or come up with a clear story about whether, you know, he acted wrong or not <laughs> in this kind of situation. It's like... I did nothing wrong, but we need better rules so I don't do the wrong thing again. I, I, I don't quite follow the story he's trying to tell. Would he be best to apologize? Many have, sa have called his term an apology tour. He's been apologizing for the sins of past Canadians, uh, dating back to Confederation, um, and, and, and in some cases making Canadians feel guilty for sins they didn't commit, yet all the while he looks... Uh, 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 you know, he shines in the light while he's pointing out all of society's woes. Does the fact that he can apologize for everyone else but not himself, does that resonate with Canadians? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people making that case, uh, and presumably they make it because people, you know, uh, catch on to that. I mean, I think there's a fundamental difference between apologizing as a head of state for some sort of historical wrong done by the Canadian state in the manner that he has been doing, and a politician apologizing for some wrong that they've made themselves in their own affairs. I mean, they're, they're fundamentally different kinds of apologies in terms of who's apologizing, whether it's uh, the, the prime minister for the state as a whole or themselves just for something that they've done themselves. Uh, you know, so would it be better if he could apologize for his own mistakes? I mean, I, think, I guess if we were writing sort of politician fanfic, we might like that for the kind of emotional resonance, but... I think for the most part as voters, uh, you know, the apology is less important than a clear understanding of what uh, our governments have done and our ability to then judge them uh, at election time. So I'm, you know, I'm less interested in, in Trudeau apologizing uh, than in being clear about what he stood for. I mean, I would prefer if he came out and, and strongly said that he had done wrong. He didn't have to apologize for doing wrong, yeah. but that he had done wrong yeah. in terms of what he, what he had done. But, he but what about the point that he's even said, I'm not going to apologize? Why even say that statement? Well, I mean, I, I, clearly it's a political strategy to say, I think Canadians care more about a politician who looks strong fighting for jobs um, than one who admitted uh, he bumbled yeah. <laughs> on a fight and I didn't even really... Get you know he he was really in a way pushed around by SNC Lavalin to change a law when they faced 
uh, you know, a problem. Mm-hmm. And he changed the law for one co- corporation, but not even a way that was useful to them. So that's probably, it's harder to, to say that. But, uh, you know, at least he's come clean and said, well, the ends justify the means. And so Canadians can make a clear decision about, do they want a prime minister who, on this principle, uh, is willing to override it for, you know, some, some ends, which, uh, to my mind, weren't that clearly defined. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, that's the thing with uh, an ethics commission's ruling. People say, well, yeah. why can't there be a penalty mm. given to the prime minister? But the penalty is the one we, as voters, that's make right. at yeah. election time. Do we sanction governments that engage in this kind of behavior, or do we uh, punish them? And so uh, that's really what we have to decide in, in eight weeks' time, and uh, that's our responsibility. Peter Graham has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We have uh, talked about this story uh, quite a bit in the past, and uh, Global News has done some incredible uh, investigative reporting into the opioid crisis and uh, looking at it from all different angles, uh, you know, how it how it comes in from the West Coast through China uh, into Vancouver and such, and, and how it has affected the economy there and, and moving uh, uh, east word across the country. Uh, they've got uh, a four-part series uh, going on now, and I'm just about to uh, to uh, quote from uh, the, the fourth installment of this. Uh, and this is in regard to Big Pharma. And again, we've talked about this on the show several times because it appears that Big Pharma has really gotten off the hook on the whole opioid epidemic. And uh, over past discussions we've had on this issue, it is blatantly obvious that uh, Big Pharma came up with drugs like OxyContin, and, and so on and so forth with the promise that these weren't like heroin, these weren't uh, like other narcotics, that we got to get over the stigma of the 1930s and 40s and 50s and that these drugs are good for you and they can be managed and these are not addictive. That was the big promise. Clean drugs, not addictive, will not do harm to the people who take them. Uh, then, of course, uh, we get uh, big promotion going on from these big pharma companies, whining and dining doctors, uh, hospitals, uh, medical organizations to promote these drugs. Blammo, and now uh, the stigma is worn off and doctors are feeling good about prescribing this sort of narcotic again. Fast forward, all of a sudden we've got the crisis that we have uh, and, and doctors trying to get a handle on the overprescription of these drugs. We've got people that are addicted to it. Uh, then, of course, the whole fentanyl situation, the illegal fentanyl situation, and, and how these people are uh, getting their fix through uh, illegal means now, uh, as this is being more closely monitored and doctors are finally starting to back off on all these promises made by uh, these companies. Uh, the headline of the article, and you can catch this on globalnews.ca as well as the CHML website, Big Pharma paid $151 million to doctors, hospitals in 2017-18, but we don't know who got paid or why. This is the fourth and final story in a four-part series about the pharmaceutical industry and the hold it has on Canada's healthcare system, swaying doctors' opinions, funding medical schools, and ultimately affecting the type of drugs we are prescribed. And of course, go uh, hit the CHML website and, and, and you'll find the Global News uh, 
uh, features for the part ones through uh, three on this series. It goes on to say the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies in Canada gave more than $151 million to doctors, hospitals across the country over the last two years. But unlike the U.S. and many European countries, Canada has no legislation compelling drug companies to reveal which health care providers got money and what it was for. Now, experts and medical researchers are calling for greater transparency around the millions of dollars shelled out every year as multiple studies have shown that even small transfers of value can affect uh, can affect how a physician prescribes certain drugs. Uh, Quinn Grundy, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto who also studies corporate influence on health, said that without so-called that without the so-called sunshine legislation in Canada, it's impossible to gather data to produce studies similar to those done in the U.S. and track how pharma dollars are influencing the healthcare system. He says researchers in the states have found that a physician who attends a presentation, eats just one sponsored meal, is more likely to provide or prescribe the brand name drug, which tends to be at a higher cost. To talk more about all of this and uh, and this four-part series, let's bring in Andrew Russell, Global News investigative journalist, and uh, of course penned this story, uh, along with uh, Karen Lieberman, and is on the line with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you for having me. How much is Big Pharma responsible for the opioid crisis we now have or are seeing in, in a lot of Western countries? So, this is one thing, I mean, it's, it's been really well-documented, uh, researchers, uh, experts who spoke with us. Um, we've, as, as you mentioned at the top there, we've reported on this in the past. Um, overprescribing was a major contributor to the opioid crisis we've seen now. Now, I mean, the majority of the deaths that we're seeing uh, here in Canada, also in North America, are attributed to illicit fentanyl, but the foundations of that really started in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, when companies uh, like Purdue Pharma were marketing and really aggressively pushing um, opioids uh, like Oxycontin onto doctors. Talk about how this promotion happened uh, and the stigma that was with this drug since way back when, but now somehow changed the medical community's mind about this stuff. So right now, Purdue Pharma is facing hundreds, if not thousands, of lawsuits, both uh, here and in the states. Uh, In fact, I think nearly all 50 states have filed lawsuits against a company seeking compensation for the the, the effects of the opioid crisis. And one of the things that they all pushed to, or that they all sort of talk about, was how in the early days, Purdue Pharma downplayed the addiction risks while sort of you know, promoting this as like a miracle, you know, take one and all your pain goes away and there's no sort of, you know, fallout from the drug. Now, they've settled some lawsuits, but I mean, they're still facing, you know, hundreds of millions in lawsuits across uh, North America. And I think they're sort of one of the, one of the key sort of companies that people go to when we talk about, you know, the origins of how this crisis started. Um, doctors uh, uh, have had um, 
you know, when you when you look back at how all of this started and how these drugs were marketed, it appeared from what I've learned that doctors very much had a stigma about these types of drugs. Uh, they'd learned through the 30s and 40s and 50s that they weren't even going to touch these types of drugs because of their addictive nature, because of exactly what has happened. How did they convince doctors and the medical community? And they even, you know, called them old fashioned to be looking at these drugs, this strain of drugs this way. How did they convince the medical community that that wasn't the case, that these were safe? Um, well, I, th- I think one of the things they did was they, as part of that sort of aggressive marketing campaign, was they, they had a lot of sort of FaceTime with doctor organizations, uh, these small sort of dinners, uh, you know, sponsoring, you know, just getting this sort of you know, miracle drug. I mean, Oxycontin is just a brand name version of, of hydrocodone, but it's a, uh, it was just sort of a really sort of slow but aggressive marketing campaign. And it, as part of the story that we looked at, um, the, it was really important going forward that we have sort of the kind of transparency legislation to look at, you know, how much money Big Pharma is giving Canadian doctors so that we can track and sort of see if there's any kind of, you know, problematic payments like what we saw with the opioid crisis. And we've, as part of the piece that we did, you know, we sort of looked at studies in the United States that were able to track sort of, um, you know, in certain counties, doctors who received higher payments from drug companies um, ended up, those same counties ended up experiencing higher overdose death rates. And one of the reasons why they're able to track that is because, they just have way more data in the, the United States than we do here in Canada. Now, with considering all the traction and, and all the uh, the news coverage that the opioid crisis is getting, will do, do you see that there will be a demand for a greater transparency? There'll there'll be a, a a greater demand to need to know where this money is going. So, from all the experts and sort of researchers that we spoke, there there is a large push in, you know, among Canadian doctors, among Canadian healthcare providers for this kind of, you know, transparency legislation. Other countries, you know, the U.S., um, other European countries, France, Denmark, even Japan, all have this kind of transparency legislation where every um, transfer of value of $10 or greater is uh, is recorded and publicly available. Like in the U.S., you can see, you know, this doctor here in Michigan got this much from, you know, X company. And it's it's really great for producing these kind of studies to see how those dollars can influence the healthcare sector. Is this still happening? Uh, so, like, is the are they are these drugs still being promoted this way to the medical community? So, I mean, it, it depends what kind of drug you're talking about now. So for something like you know, opioids have been dramatically reduced. In fact, uh, earlier, uh, sorry, last uh, I believe it was last. Or, Early last spring, um, healthcare uh, sorry Health Canada announced that it's restricting the marketing of opioids altogether, and um, you know this was something that researchers had first identified with the crisis. Now the marketing is one thing, but we you know for example, Purdue still gave you know two million dollars to Canadian healthcare companies last year, and we have no idea what that money was for. And are you, how concerned are you that uh, now that they're cracking down on the distribution of opioids, doctors are less inclined to prescribe them? How much of that is fueling the illegal fentanyl business? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think the, the illicit fentanyl uh, crisis is, um, it's, I I, to me, it seems like it's just going to keep going and, until there's really sort of a crackdown on how it's getting into the country. Right. To me, that seems to be the, um, that should be the main focus. Uh, in addition, there's, you know, a lot of experts are now coming out talking about creating sort of a safer supply of, of, of you know, opioids to take away that sort of, you know, the, the, uh, the allure of the black market. But to me, the key issue there is it's cracking down on the illicit fentanyl getting into Canada. How does that, and I know we're, we're, we're sort of deviating from the topic here, how does that happen considering, for, you know, various reports that we've done with global investigative journalists in regard to the fentanyl, considering it's all coming in from China and it doesn't seem, because of its size and so small and you can, you can package it in such a way, it just seems impossible to stop. Yeah, and I, I think one of the biggest uh, ways of of doing that is uh, to actually work, and this is going to, especially given sort of what's going on uh, currently diplomatically, might be uh, challenging, but it, it really only comes from one area, and that's a region in southern China. Right. And so the only way I think we're really going to, is, is to, you know, closer partnerships with agencies in China uh, to really aggressively go after this. Yeah, because as you say, it's really hard to do it once it gets in the mail. It's, you know, we're talking about such small quantities. So, you know, it's going to be part of a, you know, you're going to have a multi-pronged approach to try to stop this, which, you know, involves attacking the source of the drug, but also then looking at that issue that people have been talking about, a sort of the the, um, so-called safe supply to really, you know, start thinking about legalizing some of these drugs. It's something that's already been talked about um, among you know, officials in BC, and I think that's really the only way you're going to uh, get out of this uh, the crisis that we're currently in. Uh, where do you think these lawsuits that you talked about are going? Will Big Pharma? I mean, I guess they already have paid a bit already. W- w- do they need to p- to uh, pay more? Will this make a dent? Well, I, I, I it could be having a significant impact. I mean, they just settled one with Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma, for two hundred and seventy million dollars. And we know that according to uh, reporting from Reuters, there was questions about whether the company was exploring uh, bankruptcy to protect itself. So I think it is having a significant effect on the company. How has uh, has the medical community changed uh, its policy at all? Has does how, how has this changed the way the medical community views these sorts of uh, promotions or such? What have they learned? Well, think- what does what is, what is, what, what is the medical community learn from this? Well, I, I think one thing was that we know sort of the danger of just, you know, prescribing something, you know, as serious as Oxycontin for, you know, a, you know, a leg injury or a toothache. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. So it was first, uh, it was first regulated here in 1996, it was first approved by Health Canada here in 1996 for moderate to severe pain. And I think one thing from speaking, you know, from the leading medical experts in this is that it was just the prescribed way too much you know it's often quoted that you know per capita we prescribe opioids more than any other country in the world or at least in the top three and i think that's sort of one of the things that doctors started looking at was that there's other ways to manage pain than going right to these you know highly addictive opioids
Uh, how does the medical community justify this now? Do they realize that they were they were duped on this? Do they realize that they didn't do their due diligence? How do they view this now? We are now that we are where we are. Uh, that's a great question. I think a, a lot of the experts we spoke with was that this was just, you know, I think it was a failure at every level from. You know, the government guidelines around the marketing of opioids, the amount of, you know, influence some of these companies had uh, in, in creating the legislation. And then just, you know, doctors prescribing, you know, just over prescribing these kind of uh, these kind of really highly addictive drugs. And there's also questions about there was and, you know, a great series we did last uh, last winter that looked at, you know, pharmacists across Ontario who were just turning around stealing some of these, you know, highly addictive drugs and then selling them on the street. And I think mm. it was just over, you know, over the last 20 years, it was just seemed to have been a failure at, at every level. Now it's led to, you know, 10,000 Canadians have died since 2016. Do you think this will be an election issue? Do you think that uh, these you know, bringing in more transparency is something that, uh, that the public will, will, re- will resonate with the public? I mean, you know, it's it's hard to predict what's going to be an election, you know, issue, especially given, you know, what we're seeing right now with, uh, you know, SNC-Lavalin seems to be taking up a lot right. of the oxygen. But uh, I think healthcare is always, you know, top of mind with a federal election coming up. And I think, I, I hope that, you know, we join, you know, other countries like the U.S. in uh, in having this kind of legislation. Uh, A spokesperson for the Ontario Health Minister, Christine Elliott, did not answer questions from Global News, but said in a statement that the government has not yet made any final decisions related to the proposed regulations contained in the previous government's legislation. Will this become a political uh, issue or will will everybody come together for the good of Canadians? That's, you know, that's another great question that uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, we do know that. You know, what we do know is that the Liberal government under Kathleen Wynne had introduced transparency legislation that was supposed to take effect, you know, last, uh, I believe it was the uh, winter of 2018. And then the progressive conservatives under uh, Doug Ford uh, have halted the health sector payment transparency act. And when we asked them, you know, what are you guys going to be doing for Ontarians? What are you going to be doing um, this issue? You know, everywhere has, you know, especially the United States, you know, why don't we have something similar? And they said they've not made any final decisions. So we, uh, we'll just wait and see, you know, what they're, what they're going to do. But for most of the experts we've spoken with, they said they're not, uh, they're going to keep fighting, but they're not, uh, they're not hopeful. Andrew Russell has been with us. Global News investigative journalist. Global News has conducted or has conducted a four-part series, Big Pharma and Doctors, with a look at the rules or lack there, rules around disclosure, especially especially with uh, pharmaceuticals like opioids. Big Pharma paid $151 million to doctors' hospitals in 2017-18. We don't know why or who got paid. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for the time and insight on this. Much appreciated. Great work. Thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.